with card-carrying basing at this point. Ben Alomar, Director of Sports Analytics at ESPN. You stood next to Big Pop, you'd be like, he's just one of us, man. <laughs> That's kind of a big deal and shows you a lot about the randomness of sports. Rick Peterson, longtime pitching coach for the major leagues. This is Warden Moneyball's post-game podcast. Welcome to the Wharton Moneyball post-game podcast, your crash course of the major themes from our two-hour program, Wharton Moneyball, which airs live on Wednesday mornings at 8 a.m. Eastern Time until 10 a.m. Eastern Time here at the Wharton School of Business. I am Professor Adi Weiner. I am a co-host and collaborator and also a professor of statistics at the Wharton School of the University of Pennsylvania, and I'm here to break down the week's top takeaways So, one of the big conversations that is on everybody's mind, if you're following Major League Baseball, is the increasing home run activity, led, of course, by Aaron Judge, who at the time of our taping had hit 26 home runs, had had over 60 RBIs, and and an average of 330, um, competing for the Triple Crown. Not only is Aaron Judge hitting home runs, but it seems that just about everybody is hitting home runs, and we're really not sure why. Here's what I had to say about it during the last show. It looks like we're on pace to set a record for the most home runs hit ever. And that really leads us to a question, why is that happening? And there have been a few hypotheses that have been raised. And one of those hypotheses is that the ball is juiced. Now, the major leagues, baseball, MLB, actually commissioned a study and they released the results of the data that looked at the coefficient of restitution. So that's the fancy way of describing how bouncy a ball is. And that's measured by the coefficient of restitution. And they produced uh, release data that shows that they don't believe that that coefficient of restitution is outside what they consider the normal variance of uh, baseballs. Major League Baseballs are constructed in Costa Rica. There are other things that could cause the ball to go longer. It could have a smaller circumference, meaning there's less air resistance, and the seams could be lower, meaning that it creates less friction as the ball travels through the air. So those are the three things that really determine the flight of a ball, independent, of course, of the speed of the pitch and the and the force impacted on the ball by the batter. Just to review, it's the coefficient of restitution, the circumference, and the seams. Um, very interesting data was collected by two baseball commentators, Mitch Lichtman and Ben Lindbergh, who actually went out and collected balls from both before 2015 at the All-Star break and after 2015 at the All-Star break. I'm not sure how they collected that data, how scientific that process was. But then they sent it to the laboratory, and what they were able to ascertain is the information that MLB is putting out doesn't seem to be consistent with what they're measuring. They found a statistically significant difference in the coefficient restitution. They found a difference in the seam height Uh, My own calculations showed that it wasn't statistically significant. They didn't have much data. So collectively, those uh, factors, the circumference, which was smaller, the seam height, which is lower, and the coefficient restitution, which is higher, does explain about 10 feet of extra distance on average. Now, if you think about balls that are hit at the warning track maybe last year or two years ago, those might be over the wall this year, and those lead to... That All those factors together lead to extra home runs, and potentially that's why things are going the way they are going. So, as usual, 
We had Rick Peterson, longtime pitching coach for the major leagues with the Oakland A's during the Moneyball era, the New York Mets, and most recently as the pitching development coach for the Baltimore Orioles. He joined us on the telephone, and we had a chance to talk about the batter's swings and the contribution of the batter's swinging plane to the probability of a ball being hit in the air. And there's a lot of data which suggests that the launch angle is increased and that the Data, the balls are being hit harder, and those uppercuts could lead to more strikeouts and to more home runs. Here's Rick. Well, I mean, if you just think of, a, of an uppercut swing, the higher the pitch, the less you can uppercut it. Right. I mean, I mean you, you actually have to get on top of that ball, you know, or, or have, a, have more of a level swing. You know, so you're seeing more lower pitches. I haven't seen the data thus far this year, but my instincts tell me that the batting average at the bottom of the strike zone, which typically has been under 200 every single year for the last 12 to 15 years, is probably higher than, higher now. Well, unquestionably, it produces more home runs from the bottom of the strike zone. There's un, That is absolutely known. So the question that Rick is trying to answer with us is what could the pitchers be doing about it? And one of the possibilities for them to throw higher, it's hard to uppercut an, a, a high pitch. The problem with that is that high pitches are balls, and if the batters are able to just lay off of them, then it'll be difficult for the pitchers to get ahead in the count and strike people out. Um, And we're seeing a lot of changes, I think, in the way the pitchers are attacking individual hitters in order to react to these um, changing in changes in the in the swing styles. So we are seeing more high balls and more low balls. And as I said, it's in reaction to people getting better at the bottom. Um, more likely, it's more likely for to strike out with the bottom pitchers and they're throwing there more than ever. But the batters are also figuring out how to approach high pitches. I want to ask you about the high pitch. I mean, what is the drawbacks to throwing a high pitch? Well, the drawback is the ball. Oh. You don't sw- if you don't sw- if you don't swing at it, it's a ball. You know, I mean, that's why pitching to the bottom of the strike zone, you know, ha- has still incredible value. But I think what you're seeing is that let me qualify what the bottom of the strike zone is. If you touch the bottom of your kneecap, that's the bottom of the strike zone as a strike. Then you're still seeing an enormous amount of pitches swung at. If you go about to mid shin, enormous amount of pitches swung at below the strike. And those are unhittable balls. Unhittable balls. With the exception of a left-hand pitcher versus a right-hand batter, a breaking ball coming towards him that doesn't get into the inside corner. The batter can handle those. Yeah, so we're seeing all kinds of changes in, in the way the pitchers might be pitching the batters given their new way of confronting the pitch. Actually, some of the new data suggests that the low pitches are being called less and less as a strike. I know historically that uh, the last uh, couple years, the umpires were giving lower and lower strikes, and maybe they're moving back to not giving those strikes to the pitcher and making it uh, a little bit beneficial to the batter so that they can lay off those low pitches and wait for those pitches in the middle of the strike zone, which they can really tee off on. So our second guest was Dan Okrent. Dan is uh, quite a well-known 
journalist and author, and he's really known in many circles as the founding father of fantasy baseball. He invented what we now call rotisserie baseball. Um, He's the first public editor of the New York Times. He's been an editor-at-large of Time Magazine and manager and editor of Life Magazine, and he's a very well-known author for many books on baseball and, as I said, about fantasy baseball. One of the things I had a chance to talk with Dan about was the origin of the data that he used for the original fantasy baseball. What were your original statistics that you used? Was it a five by five? Let me just, to, for our no, listeners. Four by four. The oh, original four by four. Four by four. Still play this way. And the four offensive statistics were batting average, RBIs, home runs, and stolen bases. Stolen bases, really? Yes. And there's a reason for that. I'll get back to that. Well, we can talk about the offensive statistics first. They had to be statistics that one could see in the box score so you'd know how your players did last night. That's right. Right? So walks, for instance which should have been included, or on base percentage rather than batting average, Uh, those weren't available. in the standard box score before USA Today expanded it, it was simply at-bats, runs, hits, and RBIs that would show up, and then at the bottom you would have home runs and doubles and triples and such. So we were uh, confined by those things that were available. We used stolen base as a sort of... uh, uh, stand in, you know, can speed stand in for fielding? Not really, but it was kind of a, a, a you know, a, a, a fake connection to that. Uh, what's important about what we chose was that I prototyped the eight statistics we use against the performance of National League teams over the preceding five or six years and saw that if the National League teams had been rotisserie teams, they would have pretty much finished in the order they did if using these eight statistics. So quite interesting what Dan was describing is the method by which he came up with the original statistics for rotisserie baseball, and he was quite constrained by what was available at the box score. So the modern sabermetric statistics, like the on-base percentage, wasn't workable because walks weren't even in the box score. And uh, he did have an interesting way, I think, of, of, of verifying for himself that the statistics he used were valid because he correlated the performance of the four by four rotisserie statistics, the fantasy stats with the actual ranking of the teams in Major League Baseball. And so he said, here's how you would have done in the fantasy league. And here's how you actually done did on the, on in the uh, in real baseball. And if they seem to line up pretty closely, he felt he was doing a pretty good job. That is that they worked. And that's how he ended up with the set of statistics that he ended up using. One of the things I had the opportunity to discuss with Dan is some history and some of the innovations that are being proposed. Some of them have even been implemented and what he thought about some of those. I think that outlawing the shift is outrageous. Right. Uh, I would agree. And will never happen, should never happen. I mean, that's the same thing to say, well, outfielders shouldn't be able to, you know, to play shallow when there's a man on third. Or first baseman and third baseman shouldn't be able to play on the line in late innings when they've got a lead. You know, it just, you don't mess with where players want to stand or should stand on the field. Uh, that, that, that would be catastrophic. I, I would think. agree. How about uh, um, the, the in extra innings proposal? My solution for the shorter game has to do with uh, use of relief pitchers, and that's really the thing that has extended the game more than anything else. You know, If you have a pitchers can pitch in complete games, which they don't do anymore, and you don't have those pitching changes, particularly mid-inning pitching changes, right. you have a very different length of game issue. And I, I think that once you bring in a relief pitcher in mid-inning, I think that relief pitcher has to stay in until at least a run, one run scored. So one of the things that 
we didn't have a chance to hear from Dan was about what he thought about the extra innings proposal, but I think he doesn't think they're good ideas. Um, he doesn't think that banning the shift is a good idea. I agree. I don't think you should ban the shift. I don't particularly think it was a good idea to get rid of the intentional walk, or at least the process of the intentional walk. He does have a suggestion to ban the bringing in of too many relievers in a single inning, which is a practice which has, of course, lengthened the game. He does say that he believes that that's the main reason why the games are longer. I don't think that's the main reason. It is a reason, but I don't think it's the main reason. I think the main reason is the pitcher just takes too much time to throw the ball, and that used to be much faster. The pitchers throw a lot harder. They have to kind of... uh, marshal their energy, which requires, instead of 10 seconds of rest in between pitches, 20 seconds. And there's a lot of pitches, and that's a lot of time. So that's my interpretation as to why there's so much longer games. But it was interesting to hear what Dan had to say on the topic. This concludes another edition of the Wharton Moneyball post-game podcast. If you want to hear the full show, it's available for download on SoundCloud and on the Apple Store under Podcasts. Don't forget to check out Wharton Moneyball Live every Wednesdays, 8 to 10 a.m. Eastern Time on Sirius XM's Business Radio Channel 111. It is also replayed several times throughout the week. I want to thank our podcast producer, Danielle Bruno, and the producer of Wharton Moneyball, Matthew Johnson. Join us next week for another edition of the Wharton Moneyball Post Game Podcast. And until then, enjoy your sports, enjoy your stats.